He's going to be with us for the Sunday School elective hour in right here in the sanctuary. I hope you'll stick around for that. Uh, we're considering the idea of church planting. What would that look like? I know Mitchell Rhodes has been involved in sending off daughter congregations in the past. But what would it look like to have a new wave of church planting? There's such a need in our city, our county, our region, our nation, our world. As you know, we have Horace and Frida Gudas here with us. They are finishing their academic studies at the end of this calendar year. Actually, let me clarify that a little bit. Frida is finishing her studies. She'll be graduating with a, a degree in Christian counseling. Horace has another year to go, but he'll be able to do that back in Greece online and uh, complete his studies in the context of an internship with, with his denomination, the Greek Evangelical Church, right there in Athens. But what, what would it look like for us here to plant a church like Horace and Frida hope to do in Greece? It's not just a global need. It's a domestic need as well. So join us for the elective this morning. You'll hear about Jacob Morrison's journey to church planting and what it might look like for Mitchell Road to, to step out in faith in this way in the future. So Jacob is opening God's word to us in this service and in the second service this morning. Come on up, Jacob. Uh, Jacob is uh, recently arrived church planter in High Point, North Carolina, and he and his family were ministering here in Greenville for, for years. Palmetto Hills Church, one of our sister churches in the Presbytery. It's been our privilege at Mitchell Road to come alongside Jacob and his family with a, a significant financial gift as he launches out into church planting. It was wonderful to see his calling, his gifting being used in reaching a community that, that is without a PCA church. I'm sure there are other churches, but the uniqueness of of a PCA ministry was missing in this particular uh, city. So you'll hear more about that from Jacob this hour and next. If you stay, I hope you will once again. Jacob is married. He's, uh, he and his wife are parents to three young children. And they have one who's especially young, I think about a month old. Three weeks. Three weeks old. Okay. <laughs> so you can, you can know how to pray for this young father right here. But we're thrilled to have Jacob as he has launched his ministry in High Point. Can't wait to see what God will do in growing this new congregation. So, Jacob, welcome to the Mitchell Road Pulpit today. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. If you would, turn your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 52. Look at 52, verse 13 through 53. As you're turning there, uh, greetings from High Point. That is still getting some used to. As we've lived in Greenville for almost 10 years, we've been in High Point for about two and a half months. Uh, during that time, though, the Lord has really blessed us and shown his grace to us with great neighbors, uh, with uh, connections for our family, and uh, sustaining us through uh, these last few weeks, uh, welcoming Molly Catherine, our, our newest addition, our baby girl, to the family. Isaiah 52, starting verse 13, going through chapter... 53. I'm about to read to you is God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask that the Lord might bless the reading, the hearing, and now the teaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do come before you again, and now we ask that you would send your spirit afresh and new upon us. Would you... Open our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts to your spirits, that your spirit would come and change us to look more like your son, the suffering servant, who is Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So enigmas are everywhere. And the one I hear all the time, especially when they meet me and they meet my wife, is, what did she see in you? And if you're a guy here, you've probably heard that before. In our months of living in High Point, we have come across a number of people who call themselves former church people who are puzzled by what we are doing. Why would you plant a church here? It puzzles them. It's an enigma of why we're even there in the first place. An enigma is something that is mysterious, something that is difficult to understand. It's hard to wrap your mind around. Enigmas lend themselves, then, to people creating theories to answer those deep, unsettled questions, those things that puzzle them. They say, here's a theory, she's with him, 
Because he's rich. Nope. (laughs) There is this enigma, though, that seems to surround the gospel. People have a hard time wrapping their minds around it, and so they create their own theories as to what Christianity and the gospel really is. And you've heard these theories before. There are transactional theories, like I have to act a certain way and then Jesus will love me. If I do the right things, then he will reward me. I will be healthy, I will be wealthy, or at least my kids will do what I ask them to do. It's a transactional theory. Other theories of Christianity just seem to be affirmations of our desires and worldviews. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to have peace and be loving to everything, and that's all there is to it. Uh, I've run across those uh, theories of the gospel in my time at High Point already. I'm sure you've run across them here as well. And it makes me wonder, why are these theories so prevalent? It's because there is an enigma of the gospel. You wonder why. Our text from the end of Isaiah 52 and then the 53, it gives us a remarkable insight as to why the gospel appears to be an enigma to people. Why unbelievers and even believers at times struggle with comprehending it. And it's because there is a tension present that makes us uncomfortable. There is a problem we face daily uh, in believing these words from Paul in Romans 4 that God justifies the ungodly. Why would he do that? How could he do that? Well, we see how this morning laid out for us. Three points, because I'm Presbyterian, and the enigma of the exaltation, the substitution, and then the satisfaction of the suffering servant, that is Jesus. So the exaltation, the substitution, and the satisfaction. That's where we're going this morning. Let's start by looking first then at the, at the exaltation, this enigma of exaltation, which we see starting in the end of chapter 52. And as you look there, as you turn there, let's remember what you have read this week so far in Isaiah. In Isaiah 51, what did we read about? But the promises of God where he says, Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham and Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. He says, The Lord comfort Zion. The Lord will show his joy and gladness will be found in her. Give ear to me, my nation. I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in a like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. He promises, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at the reviling. My righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. You hear these promises again and again and again and again repeated throughout the scriptures of what he has said. And Isaiah is saying, look at those promises. Those are just a glimpse of the promises of Isaiah 51. Of a call to remember the promises of God that were made all the way back in Genesis that continue on today. Remember those. Trust those, Isaiah is saying. Because there is one who will come and bring about all of this, my servant. And how will he do that? Verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant will act wisely. He shall act wisely. And he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So how does he bring about those promises? First, he acts wisely, which means he knows what needs to be done in order to bring about the intended result, and he does it. 
He acts wisely, and because of that, he is exalted. Notice the, the, the exaltation has almost a threefold aspect to it. Do you see that? He is high. He is lifted up. He is exalted. It sounds majestic, doesn't it? Incredible. So where's the enigma in this exaltation of being high and exalted and lifted up? Verse 14. The one who is high and exalted and lifted up, it's the one who is so marred, so disfigured, that he doesn't even look human. You see that? One writer wrote of this verse that the servant's sufferings brought such a disfigurement that those who saw said, not only is this he, but is this human? How can the Redeemer of Israel, the one who guarantees the promises of Isaiah 51, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how can the exalted one who is high and lifted up not look like a king, but like this? How does that happen? Look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle, if you've been reading through the Bible, you would realize it has some serious Old Testament connotations going on. When you read uh, those words, what comes to mind but the sacrificial system of sprinkling of bulls and goats? You read of sprinkling and you think, priestly sacrificial system. Maybe you don't do that, but that's what I think. Uh, Blood was shed and then sprinkled to signify what? But atonement. Blood shed to make the unclean clean in the presence of God. And now the nations are made clean. How? We are made clean by the exalted servant, the exalted Jesus being beaten and then crucified, his blood shed and sprinkled. And through that we are cleansed. We are perfectly cleansed through the sprinkling of his blood on his people. It is something so incredible, so astounding that it leaves kings, do you see here? It leaves kings to stand in silence, dumbfounded, open-mouthed, in awe. Y'all, the reality that left the kings of nations dumbfounded, that reality is true for us here this morning as well. How are you and I healed and cleansed from our sin? Where is our hope for forgiveness and redemption? Only by the sprinkling of blood, by being washed in the blood of our disfigured, marred Christ. What do you do with that? Look to verse 13. Because he did that, he shall be high, he shall be lifted up, he shall be exalted. And so our response to the work of the servant acting wisely has to be exaltation, has to be worship, worshiping the one for who, for our sake, became so marred in appearance that it was beyond semblance. Y'all, worship him for the way he loves you. For greater love has no one than this, that what? That someone lay down his life for his friends. We exalt him in our worship. We also see the enigma of exaltation because of how the servant is described before his death on the cross. That's what verses 1 through 3 show us of chapter 53. Look there with me for a moment where we see the servant described in his, his growing up years and, and how is he described? Like some sculpted human specimen who's been doing CrossFit day after day, working out, training his whole life for that one battle at the cross. Is that how we see him? No. What does Isaiah say? As one who grew up like a normal human being, that is, he was like a young plant that grows. Nothing's very interesting about watching a young plant grow up, is it? 
day after day, it's not very exciting. And this young plant was not one that you would thought of as all-powerful, uh, as the all-powerful redeemer of the world. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3. How does it describe him? No form or majesty that we should desire him. That is to say, he was unimpressive in all of his outward appearances. He was not the ruggedly good-looking hero. He did not look majestic or inspiring. In fact, looking at verse 3, we see him as one who was shunned by society. Look at the end of verse 3. That word esteemed. We esteemed him not. That's an accounting term. An accounting term that means reckoning of value. One commentator says that the people appraised what they saw of this man and it added up to nothing. Nothing. He was but a man of sorrow and pain. And yet, in all of this description, what does it say about the servant in verse 1? Can't look past this. Who is he described as? But the arm of the Lord. Again, think back to your readings in Isaiah this week. Where have you seen that phrase? The arm of the Lord. In Isaiah 51, 9, the arm of the Lord was the one who dried up the sea and made a way for the exodus. In Isaiah 52, he bears his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations as he prepares to act for his people. And now we see it here, the arm of the Lord. Who would have believed that such a description of power and might and justice, the arm of the Lord, would be linked to one who is esteemed, who is appraised, as worthless. Isn't that an enigma? Why is that so important to get? Well, we are inundated with this storyline that the powerful, the noble, the gritty warrior, they are the one who will save us one day. And we look to that. We have a sense that that's who's going to save us. Uh, one of the first things we did uh, in our first weekends in High Point is we went with our next door neighbors on a double date to the movies where we saw Top Gun Maverick, maybe you've seen it. And who represents America's top fighter pilots but the powerful, the brash, the good-looking? And then Tom Cruise, who just takes the cake. And you know, we're trained to know when Maverick flies in the battle, he single-handedly can do things that we would not believe. He can defeat Soviet Union twice. I mean, he can do, he can do anything. Our expectations of what a Savior is are challenged here in Isaiah. We have to put our hope not in the good-looking, well-known rabbi. We cannot put our hope in ideals or movements, but in the one who people didn't even think twice about, who was esteemed not. And it challenges us to ask this question, is that where our hope is this morning? Because if it's not in Jesus and in him alone, it's going to leave us hopeless. The one who is esteemed not, we are called to esteem, to exalt, and to put our hope and trust in. Why? Because that servant is to be our substitute. So let's look at that idea, that second point now, the substitution of the servant, which we see in verses 4 through 9. And it's here in verse 4 that we get to the center of the passage. And that center is, it's literal and, and it's figurative, like the heart of the matter, but it's also literal. 
Literal in that 52.13 through 53 is made up of these stanzas of three verses. And this is the crux. This is the apex. This answers questions like, why was this servant who was lifted up so disfigured? Why was he a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Why was that? The answer is that it wasn't because he was being punished by God. No, it was the arm of the Lord taking our place as our substitute. See that. Notice especially in verses 4 through 6, the stark contrast made between the he and we. What did he alone do for you and for me? But he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him. We appraised him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And yet he substitutes himself in our place. And that substitution is on full display in verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see that substitution? What we did, he alone paid for. We, it describes us in our sheep-like stupidity of going astray, have turned every different way to our own idols, and our own self-seeking pleasures. And what happens? Yahweh, God, has laid on his son, his servant, the iniquity of us all. One man put it like this, the servant is the solution of the Lord to the needs of sinners because what do we receive? Verse 5, peace, healing. We are restored in our relationship with God. We have real, full, total cleansing because of the one who took on our, it says, chastisement. I'm not that old that I know exactly what chastisement meant. So I went and looked it up. And you know what it means? Punishment. Punishment. Y'all, Jesus endured the punishment we deserve, and he gives us the peace that he deserved. That's the substitution. The Lord bore the stripes of wrath so that we may be made whole and healed and restored. Now, I don't know about you, because when I read that and I hear that, I have a tendency to struggle. And I struggle mainly because I think this. I doubt that I can be restored fully. I doubt that I can be forgiven for all of my sin. What about even the darkest of sins? What about the really shameful past that I have? You ever struggle with that? If that's you this morning, let me point you to two things. First, the words from, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole are what? Nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Or what we just sang this morning from How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. What? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It is total. It is complete. It is all paid for. Y'all, that is powerful. Also, remember Paul's words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I cling to those truths when I say, can you really forgive me? Really? All of my sin? Y'all, Jesus didn't just take the small bits of your sin, but all of it. 
He bore all of it, and it cost him dearly. It cost him his life. Your sin, my sin, has totally been paid for by the costly blood of the servant. But do you know what that, do you know what that means? Because Jesus substitutes himself. He bore the iniquity of us all. Because of that, we don't have to appease God for forgiveness. Here's what I mean. We don't have to say, hey, look what I'm trying to do for you. Will you forgive me? Look, I ripped really hard for you. Will you, will you accept me? We can accept what Christ has done for us for what it is, a display of love more powerful and more freeing than we ever dare imagine. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe God loves you that much this morning? That he has borne all of your sin and your shame on his son and given you peace and healing. Do you really believe that? One more thing I want to see about the substitute is that he wasn't dragged, kicking and screaming, into taking on the cross in our place. How did he face this wrath? Well, we see here he faced it silently with strength and innocence. To put it in a word, he faced the cross perfectly. Just look at verses 7 through 9 to see what I mean. First, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was silent. Uh, I asked some friends back here in Greenville who raised livestock, uh, if animals know what's about to happen to them as they're being led in the trailer to the processor. I asked, do they really know what's going on? You know what they did? They looked at me like I was crazy. Like, no, it's a cow. It's a goat. It's wondering if it's going to have something to eat along the way. That's to say, they aren't protesting as you take them to the butcher. They aren't putting up a fight because they don't comprehend. They don't comprehend that I'm about to be made into a brisket. They don't think that. But what is incredible is that when we read that Jesus does not open his mouth but is silent, he does comprehend He does comprehend. He knows exactly what is happening. He tells his disciples about it all throughout the Gospels, does he not? Three times in Luke's Gospel. He comprehended what the cross meant, what it would cost, and he embraced it. He became the sacrificial lamb, led to be slain. His blood poured out and sprinkled out on his people. Isaiah is saying this servant is going to put an end to the constant sacrificing. He will be the final perfect lamb that will be sacrificed. He submits himself. He comprehends the sacrifice for you and me, fully aware of what's at stake. Do you know what that means? The cross is not him not knowing. He comprehends, and it is the ultimate display of strength. And yet, what did the cross look like to the mockers and scoffers at the cross who cried out, if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross and we will believe you. Who said, he saved others but can't save himself. They saw the servant on the cross as weakness, and yet it was the most amazing display of strength this world has ever seen. And not only strength, but injustice as well. The injustice because the only one who was ever innocent was put to death at the hands of those he had come to save. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. 
Isaiah is saying this servant really was the perfect substitute. He was without stain or blemish. He was innocent. He identified our need and he voluntarily and knowingly took our place of wrath so that we might be healed and have peace. I want you to hear that. Remember these two things about this substitute. First, that the cross is powerful because of the innocence that was hung on it. That if Jesus was just a decent guy, the cross has no power, but because he is the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb of God, he is our perfect substitute. One pastor said it like this, who but Jesus has the moral majesty to serve you as your substitute? Only innocent sufferings can atone for guilty sufferings. That is, only innocent can pay the price of the guilty. The cross is powerful. And second, what does that innocent suffering servant say to you and me? Get yourself together and then approach me. Is that what he says? What do we see in Matthew 11? No, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you are a Christian here this morning, let me just ask you this. Do you have rest in your soul this morning because of the substitute? Do you believe Jesus fully and totally is your substitute? And if you're not a believer here this morning, what is your substitute? Who is your substitute for healing and atonement? Let's close this morning by looking at the final stanzas of verses, uh, of verses 10 through 12, where we see the satisfaction of the servant. The idea of satisfaction might seem odd, especially as we read those first uh, few sentences of, of, of verse 10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. How's that satisfying? But notice the end of verse 10 also talks of the will of the Lord, and then that servant shall prosper in his hand. What is happening here? Well, while Isaiah doesn't come out and say it explicitly, here is what we see. The servant that was crushed is alive. In verse 10, he sees his offspring and is working out the works of God and his people because he's alive. In verse 11, he is no longer called despised or cut off, but righteous. Why? Because he's alive. In verse 12, he is the one who reaps the spoils. Why? Because he is alive. He is alive and out of the anguish of his soul that he experienced at the cross, he shall see and be satisfied. His anguish at the cross is met with satisfaction. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him and he endured the cross. What was that joy? Hebrews 12 goes on to tell us, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now, Ray Orland puts it, Jesus Christ is acting as the executor of the saving will of God for our guilty human race. He isn't suffering anymore. His offering for sin was complete. And right now, today, all over the world, he's enjoying the satisfaction, the sheer pleasure of making many ungodly people to be accounted righteous. That those sheep who have gone astray are no longer sheep without a shepherd. They have returned as sons. The enigma of the gospel is what Paul said in Romans 4, that God justifies the ungodly. How can this be except for a substitute 
who takes on all of your guilt and sin and shame and gives us his righteousness in return. And so my invitation to you this morning is this, to take your sin for the first time for the thousandth time this week to Jesus, the servant, to lay it at the cross and trust that what he says in his word is true for you, that he separates his sin as far as your sin as far as the east is from the west. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Y'all, he cleanses us by substituting himself, the exalted one, who is high and lifted up for you and for me. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us all throughout this service of the wondrous cross of the deep love you have for us that reminds us that though sometimes the gospel seems confusing and enigma, we sang it, why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer. We can have this truth. This I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom, that we are loved by the servant, by you so much so that you sent your son to die for us in our place. Lord, help us turn again and again to your son Jesus to to rest in his finished work at the cross, to trust that our, our stripes, his stripes have saved us, have cleansed us, have given us peace and healing. Oh, Lord, help us to trust in that and be free from the guilt and shame that the devil tries to deny and tell us we carry with us. Help us be free so that we can go and serve you, love you, exalt you, the one who is high and lifted up your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.